Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I have a guest on the show all the way from Sydney, Australia. I am talking to Sarah Liz King. Sarah is an accomplished exercise physiologist who has dedicated her career to promoting safe and effective exercise practices for individuals with eating disorders, exercise addiction and hypothalamic amenorrhea. Sarah's expertise and knowledge has been instrumental in supporting individuals with eating disorders to develop positive and sustainable exercise habits that support recovery and overall health. She has worked extensively with clients in both inpatient and outpatient eating disorder treatment, helping to facilitate healthy relationships with exercise during recovery. And she has also had her own healing journey in recovering from eating disorders and hypothalamic amenorrhea. Today, Sarah is going to do a deep dive into hypothalamic amenorrhea. It's a condition that affects many women with eating disorders, but is often not understood or spoken about enough. So she's going to talk about the condition itself, why eating disorders and hypothalamic amenorrhea are connected, the warning signs of hypothalamic amenorrhea, oh, it's a tongue twister, and the detrimental effects it can have on the body. And finally, how to heal from this condition and to really get your body back into that healthy, wonderful place that we are all aiming for. So this is a fantastic conversation. I don't think I have done a deep dive into this topic before. And Sarah Liz King is the absolute right person to be talking about it. She explains some very sort of complex ideas in a very simple and understandable way. And I know you're going to get so much value from this episode. So let's get to the conversation. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So Sarah, could I firstly get you to introduce yourself to listeners, please? Yeah, so my name is Sarah. You can find me most places online under Sarah Liz King. I'm an exercise physiologist and I'm also a health and recovery coach. I've had my own lived experience of both having an eating disorder and hypothalamic amenorrhea, which we'll talk a little bit about today as well. And outside of the lovely work that I do, I live in beautiful Bondi. So you can definitely find me by the beach or with my very cute little dog, Henry, who you hopefully won't hear in the background today, but he is sitting closely beside me. And what kind of dog is Henry? Henry is a cavoodle, which I think overseas is also known as a cavapoo. So he's a cross between a Cavalier King Charles and a mini poodle. So he's very, very cute. Oh yeah, that sounds like a really sweet combination. So Sarah, can you say a little bit more than, I know you say you've had your own journey and I think the main focus of this podcast today is we're going to be delving into your expertise around hypothalamic amenorrhea, but could you just tell us a little bit sort of in brief about your own journey and then what perhaps led you to focus on the exercise physiology side of things? Yeah, so I developed what I would consider disordered eating in my late teen years, so final few years of high school, I kind of became aware of my body weight, shape and size, mostly because of the conversation that my peers were having around their bodies needing to be different for 
social occasions and our school formals and all of those kinds of things. And I was like, oh, okay, this little bit of pressure to be thin is something that I'm now thinking about. Whereas prior to that, I had really had quite a carefree relationship with food and my body and exercise. Moving forward from that point onwards, I think you combine those kind of disordered eating tendencies that started to creep in and that type A perfectionist personality. And when I entered a really challenging time, when I started uni and there was this huge transition period, I definitely turned to micromanaging my food and exercise routine to try and find this element of control in what felt like a chaotic period of my life. My own eating disorder didn't get formally diagnosed for quite a while. And I probably kind of flew under the radar for a little bit until I had a bit of a breakdown. And I remember calling my parents on the phone who were living half a world away at the time. So I was living in Australia and they were in New York. And I just said, I'm not well, I need someone to come and help me. Like, I feel like my world is falling apart. And it kind of did kind of did. I was so unwell that I couldn't continue studying with uni. I had to kind of press pause with that. I really had to figure out what the next step was to get treatment. And from that point onwards, when I was about 18, 19, it was really quite a stumbling through of treatment. I would have periods where I would do well, and then periods where things would kind of retreat back to being a little bit worse. And eventually I got to a point where I was like, okay, I have to do something. Otherwise this is going to be my life. And I don't want that for myself. So around the age of 24, I was like, okay, let's try this again and let's try something different. And I entered an intensive outpatient treatment program. So where I would go to clinic for about five to six hours during the day and we'd do therapy and have supervised meals and really kind of just learn the recovery skills that were necessary to find my way out of this eating disorder. In hindsight, I was so grateful in the moment. I was so terrified of engaging with something that felt like it was, I guess, quite intensive, but it slowly but surely started to give me my life back and I started to laugh again and my personality returned and all of those little things that I hadn't even realized had slipped out of my life. And that was kind of the start of me finally getting better. But like anything, it takes time. I think it was a slow unlearning process in my mind of all of the unhelpful beliefs being crowded out by my more helpful, healthy beliefs that I had to start focusing on and the behaviors that I knew were going to support me being a well-nourished, well-functioning human being. Fast forward a little bit, I kind of reached that point where my doctors were like, well, you've kind of hit all of the physical requirements of recovery and mentally you're saying you're doing quite well and tick that box, sounds like you're good to go. And I left that treatment. I felt amazing. I remember taking my first overseas holiday that I'd ever had the year after, which was 
absolutely eye-opening and created so many wonderful memories. But the thing that kind of lingered was the fact that at the age of 18, I lost my period even before developing my, I guess, more severe eating disorder that got diagnosed later down the track. And it was still missing even after I'd kind of like ticked all the boxes of being quote unquote recovered by what my treatment team had recommended. And that always kind of weighed on my mind. And I was always asking my doctors, what about this? Isn't this a bad thing? And I got misdiagnosed as having PCOS until I finally figured out at the age of 27 that what was causing my missing periods was something called hypothalamic amenorrhea. From that point onwards, I was like, right, now I have the name. Now I know what kind of treatment I need. And I need to really prioritize this because it was affecting my health. My bones were terrible. And I was thinking about, I want the ability to have children in the future. And if that's the case, I should probably work on recovering from this now. So my own personal journey really inspired me to make sure that other individuals who were experiencing the same thing had a beacon of hope to kind of know that it is possible to recover and also have some really tangible, helpful resources to help give them the practical steps to get there. So that is the basis of me starting my own business and becoming a health and recovery coach and the podcast and the content, because I don't want anyone to ever feel like they're alone in this journey. Oh, thank you so much. I'm sharing, Sarah. And it sounds like you went to some really dark places and you had to do a lot of really tricky recovery work, didn't you, to get to the place that you're in today? I'm glad I asked you, actually, because I just know that your experience is going to resonate with so many people listening. So thank you for sort of talking us through that, because I think sometimes on social media, it can kind of come across that people just started eating and going off to the land of rainbows and unicorns. And it's often not like that, is it? It's a messy old journey and the road to recovery. Extremely. And I did a post the other day that was actually about if you are currently working on recovery and you feel like you're just not there yet or everyone else is kind of supercharging charging ahead of you, like here is a moment of reflection. And I kind of recounted the fact that my own eating disorder recovery journey took over 10 years. And you can see all of the bright and shiny pieces that people might decide they want to share on social media. But gosh, there are so many challenging and difficult moments that nobody really shows you that are absolutely part of the journey. And although they are difficult in the moment, they do pass and it does get better. Yeah, I know. Thank you. Well, I think really does inspire hope for people listening. And I think what's helpful with your story as well is that it sounds like you really sort of tried very hard actually to do recovery perhaps on your own or with more limited support, but actually you recognized that you needed to go for that kind of more structured intensive support. And I can imagine that wasn't an easy decision, but it sounds like it was a real game changer for you. Yeah, it was not easy at all. I remember I had a wonderful friend who came to see me and she was a high school friend and I was living in a different state to her. So she came and stayed with me for a few days. And I just remember her saying like, you can't live like this. Like you have to do something about this. She's like, I love you, but 
this is really hard as someone that loves and cares about you for me to see you put yourself through. And it was that point where I was like, oh my gosh, I really have to do something about this. And when I spoke to my doctor, she was like, well, you've done this, you've done that. What about this option? And I wanted to say no. Everything from my eating disorder was screaming at me not to do this. And I was like, that sounds like the right thing to do. I will put my name down on the wait list. But the day that I got a call that there was a space available, I broke down in tears. I bawled my eyes out because I realized I would be forced and encouraged to do the things that I had avoided and that my eating disorder had kind of told me to avoid. But ultimately, that tiny little healthy part in my brain would also kind of say, yeah, but this is the right thing. This is for the best. This is for the greater good. So I'm glad I had that teeny tiny, very faint little voice in the back of my head that helped me go through with it. Yeah, well, me too. It sounds like you're doing some incredible work today, actually, because I think when you've been to those dark places as well, your passion and sort of sense of purpose around all of this is just incredibly strong, isn't it? You just know what it's like to have been there. You have walked in someone else's shoes and you know what it's like. And also there's that sense of trust from the other side of people going, you know, they're not just giving me some piece of advice out of the blue. They have also been through this. They've walked this road and they know something not just on a clinical evidence-based level, but also that personal experience. I don't know. It definitely does add a layer where I find individuals just kind of feel like they can take on the advice so much more. Yeah. So with you, let's talk a bit about hypothalamic amenorrhea. Could you firstly tell us what is it? Such a mouthful. (laughs) That's the first (laughs) thing it is. Hypothalamic amenorrhea is also called functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, or you might just see the abbreviation as the letters HA. It is a form of secondary amenorrhea, which means that you have had your periods, your own natural periods at some point in your life, and that they have stopped for a length of time of around three months or greater. Now, hypothalamic amenorrhea is a diagnosis of exclusion, which means we have to rule out all of the other potential causes why your period might be missing. So things like pituitary tumors and problems with your thyroid and PCOS and all kinds of things to get to this diagnosis. And the main driving reason why hypothalamic amenorrhea occurs is due to a combination of three factors. Number one, under fueling for your body's energy requirements. Number two is overtraining or over-exercising. Those two things combined create what we call an energy imbalance or low energy availability, which basically means like after your body's tried to do all of its absolutely essential functions, there's nothing left in the tank. So it's kind of started to shut things down in an effort to save energy. Those first two factors are under fueling, overtraining, and the third factor is too much psychological stress. So this area in your brain called your hypothalamus basically senses all of these changes happening and it goes, oh, well, there's not that much energy around, probably not the best time for reproduction. 
So it down-regulates the production of your sex hormones, meaning that you don't ovulate and thus you are not getting a menstrual cycle each month. That is the definition of hypothalamic amenorrhea in the simplest of terms. So how are eating disorders and hypothalamic amenorrhea connected? And I guess that might seem in some ways quite obvious to some people listening, but I'm wondering as well, can one have hypothalamic amenorrhea without, perhaps if you're underfed, over-exercising for non-eating disorder reasons too? Perhaps could you address that first and then talk a little bit about eating disorders and the connection? Yeah, so a person can have hypothalamic amenorrhea and not have an eating disorder. And it might be completely unintentional that they fall into getting it. For a lot of people, we kind of live in this culture where exercise is very glamorized. The more, the better. You might just be a very sporty person. You might really enjoy exercise. You might be an athlete. And so you might be moving your body quite a lot during the day, and maybe you're just not aware of what your energy requirements are, or the level of exercise that you've done or are doing has changed your hunger signals. So maybe you're just not feeling hungry and therefore not really prioritizing how much food you're having. Some people also just have really, really busy schedules and they might forget to eat. We often see people that have like ADHD or other kinds of like neurodivergent disorders who might have difficulty just remembering to eat because they get so focused on doing other things. So there are a plethora of reasons why a person might develop hypothalamic amenorrhea, not related to having an eating disorder. And also they do occur in people that have both eating disorders and disordered eating as well. And for not just the classic kind of picture of what we think the person might be affected with hypothalamic amenorrhea is, it can be a person of any body weight, shape or size. And I think that's one of the biggest myths is that you have to be quote unquote underweight to struggle with or have hypothalamic amenorrhea. And that is not the case. It is due to this energy imbalance first and foremost. So it can happen to a person of, if we use BMI, which is very crude measure of, I guess, body size. If someone even fits into the healthier weight or even the overweight category, they can still, and I hate those classifications, FYI, they can still have hypothalamic amenorrhea. Particularly with eating disorders, I guess some of the things that go hand in hand with eating disorders and hypothalamic amenorrhea are maybe having things like food rules, which basically mean that you might be cutting things out that would stop you from reaching your overall energy requirements. You might struggle with consistent eating and that gives your brain some false signals. So sometimes we get energy and sometimes we don't. And that inconsistent pattern can make your brain kind of not be willing to turn your menstrual cycle back on as a result. Again, it might be related to exercise habits, whether that is structured exercise habit or things like incidental movement, so walking, having a very active job, things like that. And those are all reasons why we might see hypothalamic amenorrhea in individuals that have eating disorders or disordered eating. Oh, and I thank you for explaining that. And I think it's such a great 
point that you've really emphasized that actually is not just perhaps someone who is what we might think as the more typical eating disorder presentation, which is absolutely not the typical presentation. But I think still we have this sort of fantasy, don't we, that eating disorders tend to be all about kind of young white adolescent girls who are emaciated, that more kind of typical look. Whereas you and I know 85% of people with eating disorders are not underweight. And I think it's just so helpful for you just to sort of lay that point down, actually, that it can affect anybody, really, if you are undernourished, over-exercising, perhaps experiencing this psychological stress. Yeah. And that's a big component I think we often miss out on is your brain can sense psychological stress the same way that it can sense this physical stress of being underfueled and having to deal with too much exercise. And we often think of stress as things that happen outside of us, but that's also the stress that we place on ourselves. So I'm often talking to people about internal sources of stress, so black and white thinking, perfectionist tendencies, being very high achiever, all of those things can place a lot of stress on ourselves. And then you add to that maybe struggling with your mental health, having a co-occurrence of things like depression or anxiety, all of that can add to the stress of your life and learning how to navigate through those and find healthier coping strategies and mechanisms and tools is a really essential part of the HA recovery process alongside obviously your mental health recovery as well. Yeah, I know. So important to emphasize. I think you talked already a little bit about some of the warning signs and the real sort of detrimental effect on the body of HA. I'm going to call it HA. (laughs) Is there anything you wanted to sort of elaborate on with that? Because I think sometimes as well, particularly in the sort of shorter term, someone might actually think, oh, I quite like not having a period, you know, because of it. not particularly pleasant always, is it, having a menstrual periods? And I think we often don't engage with the longer term impact. So you could just talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. And it's so easy to get caught in this trap of like, oh, it's super convenient to not have a period every month. And even that can get reinforced by doctors who say things like, oh, don't worry about it don't stress, maybe take the oral contraceptive pill or just come back when you want to get pregnant. That kind of reinforces the fact that, oh, our periods aren't really that essential. However, they are. They are very essential because our sex hormones don't just act in the body for the purpose of reproduction and fertility. They also have other key roles in the body. So estrogen is one of the hormones that I want to talk about predominantly. It has a very strong role in bone protection. It is really involved in the processes of how quickly bone is lost and resorbed and how fast bone is laid down and built. When you don't have enough estrogen floating around, i.e. when you don't have your period, you lose bone at a significantly faster rate compared to individuals with their own natural menstrual cycle who have good energy availability. And the thing that's really tricky with bone health is that we actually won't know whether we have a strong skeleton or whether we have been struggling with the impact of low estrogen on our bone until we have something called a DEXA scan. So a DEXA scan is basically a low radiation 
image of our hip and our spine and it tells us how strong those areas of our body are compared to our age matched controls. I was shocked because I thought, oh, I'm fine, I'm healthy, I'm quote unquote fit, active, doing all the right things. And I was diagnosed with osteopenia. So low bone mineral density, the step before getting osteoporosis in my low 20s. And that was a really big wake up call for me. Most people have been told that once you have low bone mineral density, it cannot be reversed. And that's not the case for everyone. There are plenty of lifestyle changes that you can make, including recovering your period and strength training and diet and lifestyle choices, as well as medications that can be used to reverse bone loss. But the very first step is reversing what probably caused your bone loss to be quite significant in the first place, which is restoring your periods, your menstrual cycle. So bone health is one component. The second component, which actually surprises a lot of people, is our heart health. Estrogen is cardioprotective, helps keep our arteries nice and flexible and pliable. And when we have good amounts of it, our heart health is correlated to having less occurrences of heart disease and heart complications. And how do we know this? Well, when we go through menopause, that's when women are mostly at a higher risk of things like heart disease and heart events and high blood pressure and all of those kinds of things. We really need estrogen to be floating around to help our heart do its thing and it works hard enough as it is. We want to give it a little bit of a break and a boost where we can. And the good thing is, like I said, like bone health, once you work on restoring to natural estrogen levels with having a regular menstrual cycle, you do have that kind of cardioprotective effect that returns I know there are other things that both estrogen and progesterone do. They're involved in things like regulating our mood, for example. And then we think of correlations of having good energy availability as having other benefits. So not directly related to the presence of our sex hormones, but the benefits that go alongside having good sex hormones and having good energy availability means that we get a lot of other health benefits like strong hair, skin and nails, a better functioning thyroid, improved digestion, all of those kinds of things that people might be going like, oh no, those all impact me. And maybe I do have HA. Those things often, they do get better. I'd say like digestive concerns, which often afflict a lot of people that have disordered eating and eating disorders as well, is one of the things that improves quite significantly with HA recovery also. So helpful just talking through all of those things in detail, because I think it's something that we don't really hear enough about, do we? And perhaps we don't hear enough from the medical profession. And if we go along for a chat with our doctor, can you tell us a bit more as well? Because I think a lot of people do get put on the oral contraceptive pill as a kind of fix to their HA. But is that actually going to solve the problem? Yeah, it's a very old school thought in the medical world unfortunately, and it has been disproven that the oral contraceptive is a solution for hypothalamic amenorrhea. So the old school of thought is if you give someone the oral contraceptive pill, it has these kinds of synthetic forms of estrogen and progesterone, which will be bone protective. But that is untrue. That has been disproven. And we now know that Taking the oral contraceptive pill, the way that it actually works is to suppress ovulation 
And we actually want that whole ovulatory cycle to be happening because it's that estrogen impact that is bone protective. If your doctor or health professional says, just take the pill, your better option is to say, no, I actually know that that isn't going to do anything for me other than give you a, what's called a withdrawal bleed. So basically the week that you take the sugar pills, your body has a withdrawal from those synthetic forms of hormones. And so you shed the lining of your uterus but a period, our own natural menstrual cycle is happening because ovulation occurs, which means that our body has built up its own natural thickening of the uterine lining. And we have this good amount of estrogen. Fertilization does not occur. Then we're losing the lining of our uterus for that reason. So one is just a withdrawal bleed because you're no longer giving your body those synthetic hormones and another one's happening naturally because of good amounts of our sex hormones being present. Your better option is to say to your doctor, I would like to see an endocrinologist. Now, endocrinologists are hormone doctors. They are so smart. They know all the things about all the chemical reactions and physiology related to the hormones going on in our body. And they can prescribe something called HRT. So HRT stands for hormone replacement therapy. Now, hormone replacement therapy is different from the oral contraceptive pill because it does not suppress ovulation. Instead, it provides bioidentical forms of our hormones into the body. Typically, these are used for women going through peri and the menopause. However, they can also be used to support a person who is also going through HA recovery. It is not a long-term solution, but it can help protect the bones while a person has then given themselves a little bit of time to make the lifestyle changes necessary to help their body regain their natural periods on their own. If your doctor says, here's the pill, say thank you, but no thank you, unless you're using it for another reason that's unrelated to your HA recovery. And definitely ask for a referral to an endocrinologist instead who can take a really good look at how your hormones are functioning and provide you with some treatment options and support. Okay, so, so helpful. Thank you for that, Sarah. Can you tell us what's the best way to begin to heal HA and to restore our period? So HA recovery, I always say, is simple in theory, but that does not make it easy. It's simple in theory because what we're trying to do is reverse what is causing our hypothalamus to be suppressed. So if we are underfueling and overtraining and we have too much psychological stress, we're working on optimizing our fueling, modifying our exercise and proactive stress management. All of that is well and good. But if you throw something in like an eating disorder or disordered eating, that might be the exact opposite of what that part of your brain wants you to do, which makes it simple, but not easy. So for the nutrition side, what we're really aiming for in the initial instances is regular, adequate eating. So I always give this principle of threes. 
we're aiming for three meals and three snacks at least roughly every three or so hours during the day, including all three main macronutrients. So proteins, carbohydrates, healthy fats into the mix, which basically helps us make sure that we're getting all different kinds of food in there, both nourishing foods and soul-fulfilling foods. In the initial instance, that's kind of like your basic principle to start off with. Then we've got the modifying exercise side of things. So we really want to take the intensity down a notch and cut out in the first instance, all high intensity exercise. Things like anything that's going to get your heart rate up, running, higher intensity biking or cycling or cardio style workouts, HIIT training, and then also things that people wouldn't consider necessarily high intensity, but do have that kind of impact physiologically on the body. So Weight training, for example, where you're kind of pushing the weights at quite a high intensity or up and around failure in an effort to build muscle, that is more high intensity training. And then other things like sport, team sport can get that high intensity element. So working to, at least in the first instance, cut those down and then press pause on them for a little while and swap to more low intensity and moderate intensity forms of exercise. And for some people also complete rest is the way to go, not only for the physical break, but also sometimes we need that mental break to help us create a better relationship with movement when we have a chance to kind of work through some of the psychological relationships that we might have with it which might be have healthy intentions at some stages and sometimes unhealthy intentions at other points in time. And then again, we're working on that element of psychological stress. So I often find that a lot of my clients are go-getters, they're doers, they're achievers, and some of the most intelligent people I've ever met. And a lot of their work ethic and drive and ambition has gotten them far, but it's also created these expectations that they can never rest and never have a moment off and always have to be go, 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 do, do, do. And your brain senses that and it needs an opportunity to decompress. It needs moments where it can do things at a more realistic level. And part of treatment is going, okay, well, how do we break away from these unrealistic expectations? How do we put some of this perfectionistic tendencies into perspective with the rest of our lives? How do we break the all or nothing mentality and the black and white thinking? How do we give ourselves more time to decompress and relax? Because that is what not only helps us recover our periods, but it also prevents us from feeling burnt out, prevents our periods from going missing in the future, and it also protects our mental health as well. So In the initial instances, if I was someone that was just starting recovery, those are some of the very first steps that I would take in those three areas before you kind of build on top of them. I'm guessing for people, it is extremely challenging, isn't it? Trying to put some of these steps into practice. And I can really see why people like need some support sometimes. It's really stepping out of one's comfort zone, I guess, isn't it? Eating more, not being so busy, reducing activity. And that's going to bring some really uncomfortable feelings, sort of stepping away from that place, which is very known and safe, even though it's been making you unwell. It is. The emotional side of things of recovery is what makes it one of the most difficult things to go through because we have to remember for a lot of individuals, maybe their identity has been wrapped up in 
how much exercise they do or being an athlete or they've been praised for the way that they've eaten or diet culture has solidified certain messages in their mind. We can think easily of weight stigma and internalized fat phobia and all of these kinds of challenging psychological elements that can often be the biggest obstacles to us making the behavioral changes that we know will get us to a regular period, recovering our period. That is often why I say HA recovery is simple, but it's not easy. And why support is so, so necessary is because you don't just want to kind of think about this as a short-term change. Oh, I'll just do this for a couple of months and I'll get my periods back and then I'll retreat back to what I was doing before. That doesn't work. If you do that, your periods are going to go missing again. This is an opportunity for you to really unlearn all of those unhelpful mindsets that you know have been perpetuating habits that led you to your period missing in the first place, whether those are intertwined with an eating disorder or disordered eating or not, they still need attention. And how long does the process take to recover? And I'm sure this varies so much from person to person because I think I know you're saying perhaps with your own healing journey, you got to that stage in a way where you were sort of fueling yourself, you'd made lots of changes, but there was still that kind of missing piece around suffering with HA. Can it sometimes be several years for someone to restore their period? Yeah, it can. It definitely can. I mean, in my own personal experience, from the moment where I kind of figured out, oh, HA is the thing that I have and Maybe I do, even though the doctors have all kind of given their tick of approval and said, you know, I'm quote unquote fine. My body's saying I'm not fine. So from that moment, my own recovery took about six-ish months. And six months is about average for most people. However, it also depends on where you're starting. It can be as little as three months and it can be 18 plus months. There is such a wide range of what we commonly see for those in a recovery process. And I would say if weight restoration is going to be a part of your journey, then the length of time for recovering your periods might be a little bit longer. I've even had clients who are what has been considered for all intensive purposes, their restored weight. And it's still taken several months for their body to kind of catch up and switch things back on. So sometimes our brains, our hypothalamus is pretty stubborn and that can be really, really frustrating for individuals. But we have to kind of remember your body has been through a really stressful period for months, if not years. Sometimes it takes a lot of evidence that we're safe we're well-fueled and well-fed, we're not in a stressed environment for our body to kind of go, okay, now we can switch everything back on. Try to keep that front and center in your mind. If you are someone on a HA recovery journey and you feel like everybody else around you is getting their period back and it's just not happening for you, hormones are slow-moving creatures. They're like the race between the tortoise and the hare. All the lifestyle changes that you're making is kind of like the hare running ahead in the race as fast as they can. Your hormones are kind of the tortoise that creep up behind. Eventually, the tortoise wins the race, but it can feel like you're not getting anywhere, but you probably are. It's just that the hormones take a little while to catch up. 
And that makes sense. So Sarah, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to read more of your content, access your resources? Yeah, please let us know. You can find me online on Instagram, on TikTok, on all of the social media platforms at Sarah Liz King. I am most active on Instagram and I do have a YouTube channel as well. Otherwise, my website, sarahlizking.com, has all of our great resources and courses and group programs that are helpful for those who are going through their HA recovery journey. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on the podcast today. I think you've packed such incredible value into this episode. And I know that the listeners are going to find it incredibly valuable because I don't think it's a topic we've ever done a deep dive on before. So I massively appreciate you sharing. I think you have a great skill for communicating quite complex things in a very um, straightforward and simple way. So that's much, much, much appreciated. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did do go and check out all of Sarah's details in the show notes. If you're a professional listening to this and you want to learn more about eating disorders, I run eating disorders training courses several times a year on Zoom and face-to-face and I've now put this online. So if you're interested in actually accessing this course, do go to my website, theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk and you can find all the information there. If you're not following me already, do see me on Instagram, theeatingdisordertherapist underscore. For further support with your relationship with food, do go to my website, theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. If you enjoy this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm -hmm.